0: Welcome to The Unconventional Path, Entrepreneurship and Innovation Stories and Ideas. Hello, I'm Bela Musitz.
1: And I'm Mike Wasserman.
0: Today, we are joined by Carl Allen. Carl is the co-founder of Dealmaker Wealth Society and PROX Capital. He helps entrepreneurs acquire existing businesses as an alternative to starting a business from the ground up. He also is a coach who helps entrepreneurs acquire other companies as a tool for growth.
1: Bela, I'm excited to hear what you and Carl will discuss today. I mean, I'm really intrigued by this idea of integrating acquisitions with entrepreneurships. It's really cool, so let's get right to it.
0: Welcome, listeners. Today, I'm here with our guest, Carl Allen. Carl spent many years in corporate America uh, consulting and helping large companies figure a bunch of things out. Then a number of years ago, he blazed off on his own and started Dealmaker Wealth Society. Welcome to the show, Carl.
2: Thanks for having me.
0: Sure, so uh, Carl, let me ask you a question. I usually start the podcast off with this specific question. If you are at a social gathering, uh, a non-business social gathering, right? And uh, you get introduced to somebody, and after the introduction, they ask you, Carl, what do you do? How do you answer that question?
2: It's really funny. So I, I call myself the, the the British Richard Gere. Have you seen the movie Pretty Woman? Um, oh oh Richard sure. Richard Gere. He's a he, he's a deal maker. He buys, grows, and then sells companies. So that's what I do. But he was doing it with uh, you know billion dollar companies. I do it um, in the one to ten million dollar revenue space. So I I buy, grow, and sell those types of uh, businesses, and then I have the absolute privilege of coaching over 5,000 entrepreneurs all over the world um, to do what I do.
0: Oh, wonderful, wonderful. So uh, as you uh, get involved in buying these businesses uh, and helping entrepreneurs grow them, uh, t- let's, un- let's peel that back a little bit. Go uh, Go a little deeper into that. What are some of the specific things you might do?
2: Yeah, so the first The first point of all that is uh, the actual acquisition of the company. So I work with um, entrepreneurs that want to become a business owner, and they very wisely realize that buying a business is much quicker, cheaper, and safer than starting an existing business from scratch, which in my opinion is the craziest, most dangerous thing one could ever do. But I also work and coach existing business owners who want to scale their businesses much faster by acquiring other companies. So rather than going out and hustling for new customers and making new products, you just go buy them. You go acquire them uh, from somebody that, that wants to sell. So that's the first point is um, how do you know what type of business to buy? Uh, that's the first question I ask anybody. Um, because if you're new to this, it makes a lot of sense to buy a business in a sector that you know, that you understand, that you're passionate about. So if you're an IBM sales guy and you want to become a business owner, you know, go buy a small technology company. Don't go buy a vineyard or a laundromat or a gas station. Uh, if you're an existing business and you want to double the size of your company very quickly by buying another one and sticking it together... Obviously, you want to buy a business that strategically is going to move the needle for you. So buy a competitor, buy somebody in your supply chain, or buy a complementary business. It's like um, like Salesforce.com. They wanted to get into the the messaging and collaboration space. Did they figure it out themselves? No, they went and bought Slack. When Amazon realized that all of its customers were listening to books as well as reading them, Did they figure that out themselves or did they go and buy Audible Um, when Amazon wanted to get into the the grocery business? uh, Did they figure that out themselves or did they go and buy Whole Foods? So large companies buy other companies uh, for growth and I'm teaching small business owners how to do it as well. Great, great.
0: So that's really interesting, you know, because having spent uh, a number of years in the venture capital business. Um, where we in, invested in in startups typically, and then yep. tried to get them to the point where we they could be sold. Right, that was our exit strategy, uh, and then uh, also spent a number of years in the academic space, uh, teaching entrepreneurs and teaching entrepreneurship. But it's always about entrepreneurship. At least in this country, is always about starting a business. Right, that's yep. that's the real focus. And and we we have courses and classes and. Uh, degrees yeah. on how to start a business i'd rather jump off
2: a bridge <laughs> yeah. yeah so that's I'll an interesting you, point why yeah i'll tell you why look look at the market data so in 2019 i don't have the 2020 data yet in 2019 6.6 million americans started a brand new business from scratch and 96 percent of them will fail fifty percent will fail in the first year and it's, it's what I call the no problem when you start a business from scratch you have no customers no products or services no cash no cash flow no credit no employees no premises no equipment no reputation and it's like my my, my analogy to this it's like buying a car so in the UK the UK we're a little bit behind the US in terms of innovation so in the UK now we have Tesla it's like amazing we have Tesla cars. So I've just placed an order for a Tesla car. I want a Tesla car. I'm gonna go buy one. So I have two options because I wanted a Tesla. Did I go and did I go onto eBay and buy all the components? The glass, the wheels, the battery, the lovely iPad in the middle, the steering wheel, the seats, and then take a bunch of courses and figure out if I lay out all these components on my driveway, how can I build the car and plug them all together and, and hope it works? Or did I go to Tesla? Buy one that they've already built for me and finance it using Tesla's money. So that's my analogy for getting into business ownership. Go find a business that's thriving and profitable that the seller doesn't want anymore. They either want to retire or they're bored or frustrated or whatever. And go and buy it and use somebody else's money to acquire the company. Partner with an investor um, leverage it with, um, with asset financing or an SBA 7A loan, and even pay the seller some of the deal over time, seller financing and earnouts, and all those great things. That for me, it's quicker, it's cheaper, and it's far less risky than going it alone and reinventing the wheel. There's, there's over 2.4 million small businesses for sale right now just in the United States. And only one in 11 of those businesses will typically sell within the first 12 months because there are a number of reasons which I'd love to get into as to why some businesses sell and some don't. But one of the issues is there's just a huge lack of qualified buyers that know how to do deals, have got access to capital, because most people think it's a big misconception, and you know this coming from private equity, that if you want to buy a business and it's worth a million dollars, you've got to rock up to the closing table personally with a million dollar check. You you don't. In some cases, you could rock up with no money. Um, In other cases, you might need 5 or 10% of of the purchase price. Um, And a lot of people don't know that. So it's what I call aquapreneurship. So it's not entrepreneurship. It's getting into business by acquiring and then You know they've got all the things in that business that you want and let let's say you've got some crazy idea of creating a product that no one else has seen and and there's no business out there you know there's going to be similar companies out there that will do what you do so go buy something within that niche that's that's relevant because then you'll have people that can help you build it once you've built it you'll have customers that are probably going to buy it already and whilst you're doing all that stuff the business is making cash flow so you can feed your family and keep a roof over your head. Yeah. So you gave us
0: some data on on business startups and, and the large percentage of them that fail. Uh, and I certainly concur with that information. Right. I've seen that data. I've shared I shared it in the classes that I used to teach. Yeah. Uh, but what's the data on on m activity? Right. So there's been plenty of. Uh, mergers or acquisitions or, you know, purchases of companies, some have done well, some have not done so well. What's the data on that?
2: So as I alluded to before, there's about one in 11 um, businesses that try and sell actually do. So out of the 2.44 million businesses for sale today, about a couple of hundred thousand deals are done in the US every single year. Uh, some of those are large deals. Some of those are small deals. The small deals are bought by entrepreneurs um, through a leveraged buyout type of model. Um, some of them are bought by existing businesses that want to scale by acquisition. and then you've obviously got the, uh, the, the large deals. Um, the, the key element to success in all of those deals is buy something that is strategically relevant to you. Deals that fail in that in that instance are where somebody buys a business, that's completely unrelated to, you know, to what they're doing. Um, when you get into the, 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 the big deal space, uh, strategic fit is only one of the typically three things that could go wrong. The other two are, our cultural misalignment. And thirdly is, uh, systems and processes don't align. When one of my, my last real job was, uh, I was an M and a director at Hewlett Packard and, um, Prior to me joining HP to to buy businesses for them, HP, uh, uh, the year before, acquired Compaq. So the two mega technology companies that had come together. Strategically, it was a great fit. HP was a printer company. Compaq was a a, a PC and a device company. And HP and Compaq realized that they had a common customer base. So it strategically made great sense. Uh, The challenge was, culturally, it didn't work. You had Californian Democrats coming together with Texas Republicans. Uh, It was like the hell's angels (laughs) going out with the Rotary Club. It was never going to work. And that's what ultimately killed the business. Um, And HP now sadly is two separate companies. It could, it just didn't survive that, that, that merger. And then sometimes businesses come together and their systems won't work. And, And that, can cause a deal to fail. In the UK, many years ago, two of our largest banks came together, the Lloyds Banking Group and the TSB Banking Group. Both of them were on completely bespoke, standalone mainframe systems, and nobody could figure out how to get the two to talk to each other. So when businesses come together, one of the things that makes it work financially is is the ability to get synergies and the ability to cross-sell products and services between customers. And if your IT systems won't work together, then it's really hard to do that.
0: Yeah, yeah. Now, uh, I want to talk a little bit more about the cultural thing, because clearly you gave a great example of, of Compaq and HP, uh, but that also must be a challenge in, in smaller companies too as well, right? If I'm a not, if I'm the new owner and, and my sort of management style, leadership style uh, is different, than my predecessors in that in that company yeah. I just acquired right there's there's got to be some challenges there how do you how do you work with entrepreneurs on solving those things
2: yeah so th- there's kind of two sides to that story as well at, at a kind of high level um that's one of the reasons, believe it or not, why a lot of small business owners will not sell to a competitor they want to sell to what they would call a, a a safer pair of hands. So it so let let's say you've let's say you started a business in the 70s and 50 years later you're ready to exit that business. You're a baby boomer and you've built that business. You've spent more time in that company, growing it, loving it, nurturing it with all the pain and suffering that comes along with it. You spent more time in that business than you have with your own family. And now's the day you're going to sell. Are you going to sell to a trade buyer, a competitor that is probably going to rip that business apart to get value, fire most of your employees and completely change the way your customers are treated? Probably not. Some people do, but most sellers of that ilk would rather sell to somebody that's credible, trustworthy from the industry, that can take their business, keep their name above the door And treat it with respect, obviously, grow it, improve it, optimize it and all those great things. And so that then lies kind of the secondary challenge that a lot of the businesses that I look at and and a lot of the businesses I buy, you could argue that they're a bit sleepy, i.e. They're treading along that, you know, they're profitable, but they're probably not growing that much year on year, maybe a couple of percentage points. And you've got a sleepy staff that they're used to that steady as she goes kind of mindset. And I come in and I've got energy and focus and, and drive and strategic ideas and all these different things. And what I find and what a lot of my students find is it's more of a positive than a negative because the really good people in the business, the people that you want, they get Engaged, They get energized by that. They think, right, here we go. I was getting bored. I was thinking of going to go and quit. But now this guy's come in. He's got all these ideas. He's fresh. He's driven. You know, this is exciting. Again, I'm up for this. Whereas you get some people that think, you know what, maybe it's time for, for me to go. Maybe I was a little bit loyal to the original owner. I don't really want to have to work hard for a living. I'll just go and find another sleeper job somewhere. And what I find in business is you don't typically need those people. If those people want to leave, great. But it's the ones that get excited and and, and get energized by your presence that lifts all boats. And then what you find is those people go, the the excited people pick up that slack. So you can boost the margins of that business pretty quickly um, with the, uh, the reduction in overhead.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, you know, as you were describing that uh, 40-year-old company that somebody built from scratch and, and devoted their whole life to it, reminded me of the movie called Other People's Money. Yeah, uh, Just a great movie about that very topic that, we ju- that you just movie. talked about, right? Uh, highly recommend that movie if people haven't seen it. It stars uh, Danny DeVito and Gregory Peck, and it's called it Other People's Money. Yeah, great, uh, great movie. So uh, if I'm interested in uh, buying a company instead of starting my own, and I come knock on your door and say, hi, uh, Carl, nice to meet you. Take me through that process. What would we do?
2: So the first thing that I would do is I I would give you a copy of my book. Because buying a business, it's not for everybody. It takes time, patience, discipline, and a lot of work. It's not some scammy internet get rich quick scheme. So the first thing that I do is I I have people read a copy of my book uh, and and that qualifies me and it qualifies them.
0: So let Uh, tell us the title of your book. You just flashed it up on the screen so I could see it, but uh, give us the details.
2: Yeah. Zero down business buying secrets, Uh, how to buy an established profitable business using none of your own money. So this is a little bit about my life story and how I've, how I've used all of the wall street tools and experience and, package that to be used by main street america and main street europe so how to find deals how to meet sellers and build relationships how to get financing how to value and structure deals then then how to close them how to get over the line and then and then what to do once you own the business so most people go through that's the top of my kind of funnel if you will most people read my book
0: yeah say that uh, title one more time carl
2: yeah. Zero down business buying secrets. I'll, I'll give you guys a link shortly to that. Um, it's $7. Uh, you can buy it on Amazon for sure, 30. Yep. But, but, um, and I'll make your, sure
0: I'll make sure that's in the show notes for everyone. For your yeah.
2: listeners, we'll, will give you guys a $7 link, uh, go through the book and then, um, if the book excites you, if you resonate with my philosophy on doing deals and my philosophy on entrepreneurship and, um, you think you've got what it takes to, uh, to actually do this, then we have a whole range of coaching and mentoring services, um, including even partnering with entrepreneurs to buy businesses where, uh, you know, we, we'll fund those deals uh, if necessary. So there's a whole gamut of, of different options for people. But, you know, first option would be um, to go through the book because there's the, kind of the, – there's three things you've got to master, to do this. The first thing is funnily enough you've got to master your own mindset. You've got a you got to manifest the, the motivation inside of you to to want to do this because what's really interesting is nobody wants to buy a business. Nobody wants to own a business. What we want are the benefits of business ownership. So it could be freedom, wealth creation, cash flow, pride, insurance, assurance. Uh, work-life balance, time with family—that that's what we crave. Um, the acquisition of a company, the ownership of a company is just the means to get there. Like we we all buy plane tickets, probably not at the moment, but we you know when we buy a plane ticket, we're not buying the plane ticket, we're buying the ability to go to a different destination for a particular reason—a vacation, a meeting, friends, whatever it's going to be. So that's the first thing is. From a mindset perspective, helping the entrepreneur really understand what's their why what's their motivation because then that once you dial that in, that gives you the fuel to keep going and, and and power through this, not like anything in life once you've got the fire in your belly, you can do anything. The second thing we do is we ask that big question that I mentioned at the start is what type of business do you want to buy and because there's so many businesses out there to buy you've got to be focused and specific. And as I said, buy a business in a sector that you know and you love and you understand, because it just makes the process um, so much easier. And then, once you've done that, then it's it's pretty much it, it's just about execution. It's about finding deals. Being a dealmaker is like being a sales guy. Um, you know, you don't go out and find one prospect and sell them something. You've got to build a funnel. You've got to find maybe five customers or ten customers, and then you've got to qualify them and they've got to qualify you. And then some of those will end up buying your product or your service. It's the same with deals. You might look at 10 deals and buy one of them. Uh, You might look at 50 and buy one of them. It just depends how, um, how niche you, you know, you want to be and you have to develop what I call a willing buyer, willing seller relationship. And it's all, it's a relationship business. Um, you build relationships, find deals and then you build relationships with with sellers and once you've got a seller that, that really respects you, trusts you, sees you as the next steward of, of the business that they've built, then it's much easier to create a, a, a deal structure that is a win-win in, in both cases. you know i've I've bought businesses where I haven't had to pay any money at, at, at closing. You know, I bought a media company uh, in uh, in Burbank, California, about eighteen months ago, and um, I I met that seller. <clears throat> Her business was worth um, it was doing a million dollars of revenue, about a hundred thousand dollars in free cash flow, bloated overhead. So I knew I could make money. Um, she would applied the standard three times multiple. Most businesses at that level are worth between two and four times their their earnings. So she said, I want $300,000 for my business. Um, She said, but here are the three things I really care about. She said, number one, you can't get rid of any of my employees. They're like a family. If you buy it, you can't let anybody go. She said, secondly, you can't change the name. I love the name of this business. Um, It's a brand in the marketplace. I I see people buy companies and they change the names. You can't change the name. And then she said, number three is... The logo for the business won a competition in 1985 when when we launched the company. You can't change the logo. The logo's got to stay. I said, well, okay, those are the three things that you want. If I do those three things, then my request is I'm going to pay you for the business over a period of time. I'm not going to pay you anything at closing. I'm going to pay for it over time. And she said, well, that's fine. My only problem is how do I pay my closing costs? I'm going to owe my attorney uh, about $12,000. And then I promised myself when I sold my business, I'd go on a vacation with my family and that's going to cost about 5,000. I said, well, okay, (laughs) if I pay you $17,500 at closing, and then I'll pay you the rest over a number of years. Some of that was seller financing. Some of that was earnout. And she said, great. So, but I paid her that money from the cash in the business, because obviously I acquired the company right, right, right. with working capital and there was surplus cash in the business. So I just paid her closing fees from that bank account um, and I took over the business and um, and the seller loved that. She went on vacation. She'd uh, obviously handed the business off to, to me and my partners. And she got a monthly check, which was great because um, she was still getting paid, even though she didn't have to go into the business anymore. She was able to retire. She was in her late 60s. And it was just a win-win deal. And And the big lesson in all that is when it comes to negotiation, people think it's got to be hard and cruel and it's numbers-based. It's not. It's more about psychology than it is about numbers. You know, when you're doing a billion-dollar deal, and I've done a bunch of those in my former life, it's more about the numbers and the financial engineering. But when you're buying a company, a seven-figure company from an owner that's had that business for 40 years, money's not as important as you think. There are other things that they care about more. Uh, in fact, the first business I ever acquired uh, was back in 2008. Um, I was hired to actually sell that company. It was a transport company in the UK. I was hired to sell it. And as a broker, I went out and I found loads of different buyers. And you know, we picked the one with the highest offer. And I, it's the night before closing. And the um, the owner of the business, Colin, he calls me. He's like, hey, uh, sorry to tell you this, but we're pulling the deal. And brokers, as you know, work on success fees. So I had a couple of hundred thousand pounds success fee waiting for me. Um, He said, come down to the business and we'll tell you why. So I went down there in the the evening and lashing with rain and I'm driving down the motorway about an hour's drive and I walked into the business and all the employees were there and they said, look, we're not selling this company to these guys because they're going to rip it apart they're going to change the name they're going to fire everybody they're going to just asset strip all they want are the customers and the trucks because we're a transport company they said go and find somebody that's not going to do that maybe an individual maybe you know somebody that knows the industry that can take it on we don't want them to change the name we don't want anybody to get fired we want the want our legacy to stay intact so i looked them in the eye and i i said i'll buy the company and they looked at me and they laughed and they said well, you know why would you buy the company um, I said, well, I, I, I can raise financing against your assets and there's a ton of cash in the business I can use um, and I'll partner with the people in the company. I pointed at the sales manager, the financial controller and the operations manager and said, they'll be my partners. I'm going to give them all a piece of the business. So they said, well, if you can do that within 30 days, we'll sell you the company. So I'm driving home. I called my wife. She says, what on earth have you done? You know, are you crazy? I said, no. following day, I called my lawyer. I called the bank. I had a term sheet for the financing by the end of the week. We closed that deal 14 days later, and that was my first deal because I realized that sellers sometimes don't just want the money. They want some money, but you can pay them some or all of it over time, and they care more about their legacy and the safeguarding of their employees and the, uh, their brand. Even the logo, their logo. Can you believe that? But hey, just give, my art of negotiation is listen to what the seller wants and give it to them. And the rest will take care of itself.
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, that's great. That's really good insight in, into these uh, smaller deals. So if I'm, again, interested in buying a business, uh, what tips do you have for what I should be looking for? And we talked about it being strategic, but what other things should I be looking for to see whether this is a good deal for me to buy or not?
1: Yeah, so
2: there's two levels to that. So at a higher level, it's what I call the the perfect deal triad. So there are three things that you need to ideally nail when you're looking at a business. The first one we've already covered, which is is it a business that's strategically relevant to you? The second is find a distressed seller of a good business, not the other way around. I'll say that again. Find a distressed seller of a good business. Not the other way around. A business that's profitable, but the seller has high motivation to sell. They want to retire. They're sick. They're burnt out, frustrated, bored, run out of ideas. You know, whatever it is. Uh, the third point is the business really it needs to have financial DNA to allow you to acquire it using other people's money. So you typically want cash flow, and if if there are any assets. Because then that gives you collateral and fuel to go and raise financing to buy it. So let let's say you find a business and it's doing four. Let's say it's doing two million in revenue, four hundred thousand dollars in free cash flow. So great business. Um, and let's say that business is worth around a two and a half times multiple. So it's going to cost you a million dollars to buy that company. If you've got a six ninety plus credit score, you can go to the SBA, the Small Business Administration take out one of their 7A loans, and they will lend you 80% of the purchase price. So $800,000 of the deal is there. You've got to come up with 10%, 100,000, so you can use your own money or you can partner with an investor uh, who brings the equity to the table. And then the seller will carry the other 10% uh, as a note. So to do that, the SBA wants to see that the business has got the means to repay the loan. They want cash flow covers and all those different things. So financial assets and cash flows in the business are really, really important. So then once you've, once you've done that and you've found the deal and you've, you've shook hands on the deal, you and the seller have, have signed something called an LOI, a letter of intent, and you've gone out and you've, you've, you've got the, the term sheet from the SBA for the financing, then the final step is, is due diligence so this is the fine detail survey of the business to make sure that it's doing everything that you think it is and, and due diligence falls into three categories you, you've got financial due diligence so our revenues what have been claimed are the profits correct is the balance sheet accurate have they paid their taxes all those different things uh the second is commercial due diligence so it, it's checking into the marketplace the customers you know, is what are the strengths, the weaknesses, the opportunities, the threats? You know, is this a is this a sector that, um, you know, that is credible? You know, crazy example is, let's say you wanted to buy a chocolate company, but chocolate was illegal in the country where you live. It's probably not a great idea to buy it. Um, the third piece of due diligence is, is legal due diligence. So your attorney whether you're buying the assets of the business or you're buying the equity of the business, so you're buying the LLC or the C-Corp or the S-Corp entity, the lawyer will do all of that detailed checking, similar to what they were doing in a real estate deal. They're checking that the seller's got the right to sell the asset, uh, there's no pending litigation, uh, all those different things. So you get the pros in to do that. You don't do that yourself. Uh, all that due diligence and stuff, you know, get... CPAs and attorneys to do all that stuff uh, for you. And then you can pay them from the business once you've acquired it. And then that that's the kind of two-level analysis. Um, And and obviously the the, the highest level, that that kind of the three points that I talked about, the the strategic fit, the seller motivation, and the financials, that's a quick five-minute test you can apply to all of the businesses you look at, the more detailed work that's really done on the deal on the business that you ultimately decide to buy.
0: Yeah. Are there, are there sort of non tangible things I should be looking at as well? You know, how do I evaluate the employees? Are they good people? Are they not? Uh, You know, are there sort of non tangible things? The list that you went through are, are sort of, you know, what I might call the terms and conditions of sort of the deal, right? The structure of the deal, uh, the numbers of the deal. But so what about non tangible things?
2: Yeah. So in terms of some of the non-tangible things that you want to investigate, you know, one would be always ask why the person is selling. Uh, what I find is the the psychological mindset of the seller can be very much linked to how you structure the deal. Um, the second is I always ask a small business owner, you know, how do you grow your business? What marketing do you do? And it always makes me laugh. In, in most cases, they'll say, well, This is what's great about our business, Carl. We we, we don't do any marketing. It's all repeat business and word of mouth referrals. And I love those businesses because I know when I get my marketing genius into that business and I scale it, I'm scaling it over and above a rock solid core of happy, loyal, uh, raving fan customers. The third question I'll ask is, I'll, I'll want to understand you know, how the company is structured. So what I'm looking for, because I'm an owner investor, not an owner manager. I'm not, I don't operate any of the businesses that I own. So I'm looking for people that can step up and run that business for me. Um, you know, a, a GM, if you will, a managing director, a COO. Um, so I'm, I'm looking to understand from the owner, who are the really important people in the business that, that I need to look after? Uh, and, you know, can I promote any of them? you know, to run the business for me. So in terms of employees, clearly you want to know who are the A players, the B players and the C players are, you know, and I, I learned this from, uh, from Jack Welsh. I met Jack Welsh when I, I did my MBA at the university of Chicago and he was a, he was a guest speaker. Uh, sadly, he passed away last year. That's um, right. Yeah, Phenomenal guy. And um, he gave us uh, a lecture at, uh, at Chicago and he was talking about a GE they had A, A players, B players, and C players. So any division, any entity within GE, uh, the top 20% were A players, the best of the best. These were the people that made all the money, the big bonuses, the, the fast-track promotions. Um, and every business needs those superstars. And then you've got the middle 70% that all businesses need, You know, the workhorses, the guys that grind and, and just get stuff done. But then the, the, the C players are lower 10%, they get fired. Um, these are, um, you know, r- right people, wrong seat. Um, you know, they're good people, but they're just not uniquely a good fit for the role or the business. You know, that you're in. Um, so I always ask the seller who those people are. I show them the framework, and I and we plot where those people are. And what typically happens is I buy the business. The seat players will go because they know they're going to get found out by me, very very quickly. That the the sellers kind of. Um, just humoured them yeah. over a period of time, but I want to know where the A players are because I'm going to give the A players equity in my business. I'm going to give the A players ownership. I'm going to give the A players the big opportunities and the big bonuses. Um, so how do, they're going Carl, to run that business for me.
0: Yeah. How do you, how do you deal with that? Uh, you know that bottom ten percent when the
2: seller says you can't fire anybody. Yeah. So I don't fire them, but uh, what I tend to find is most of them will just leave of their own accord they'll realize that uh they're in the wrong place and they won't want to stay the ones uh some of them though um and i love it when this happens their mindset changes uh when they see you know a more exciting environment sometimes they'll switch out and they'll they'll, they'll come into that zone um and they'll really up their game um but uh that often you know, and I typically wait a year, and and I'll always call the seller and say, "Look, I know we said that I wasn't going to let anybody go, but there's this one guy or this one girl, she's not cutting it, she's dragging down morale. Um, I'm going to have to let her go, and I just want you to know." Yeah. And always, always, you know, I get a positive response to that. Yeah. yeah. Um,
0: Great approach. Great approach. Yeah, I mean, I I think I often think about the sport analogy where, you know, there's a change in the, in the football coach or the manager. Yeah. And all of a sudden, players who seem to be, you know, sitting the bench are now, you know, performing really well. They're on fire. Yeah, yeah. So that's great. So, Carl, we've been at this uh, over thirty minutes now, and I want to I want to wrap this up. So, if uh, if you were sitting down with uh, somebody, what what are the three tips? Oh, first of all, let's uh, let's give the title of your book one more time.
2: Yeah, I don't, don't want to forget Zero this. down, zero down business buying secrets. Um... People can get that uh, for $7 at uh, trainwithcarl.com forward slash unconventional path. So that's trainwithcarl.com forward slash unconventional path. Um, and that, that book's going to be really interesting for for two reasons. It's going to be interesting for a person that wants to buy a business because they can obviously learn how to do it. Um, But it's also very important, I think, for a seller to read that book because then they can understand how buyers think, what buyers look for, and then they can more appropriately prepare their business for sale. One of the biggest failures that I see in the marketplace is sellers decide to sell on a whim, it's a knee-jerk reaction, and they haven't properly prepared their business for sale all their ducks are not in a row and it just makes it so much harder so that would be an interesting read for somebody that's thinking of selling yeah uh, because they'll know what to do and when yeah
0: great so Carl, you've been a wonderful guest i really appreciate you taking time to be on the on the podcast you're welcome yeah and i will make sure uh, we put that uh, train with uh, com forward slash unconventional path in the show notes so people can get your book and uh Appreciate you uh, being on the show. Thank you very much. Take care. Bye-bye. Take care.
1: Bye-bye. Bela, what a great interview. You know, it's funny. I teach strategic management and I teach about acquisitions, but only in the context of medium and large companies. I've been doing that for 25 years, almost 30 years. Okay. And I teach entrepreneurship. And like you said, it's always been about starting from scratch. I haven't even thought about the integration point between these two kind of Dynamics or approaches to business. Okay, so this is a real eye opener. Uh, you know, should I should I change the way I teach both strategic management and entrepreneurship to include this kind of logic or this term that uh, that Carl used, aquapreneurship, right? Acquisitions as a means to entrepreneurship. I mean, of course, I'd give him full credit. What do you think? Is this a game changer?
0: Well, it certainly opened opened my eyes. Uh, you know, entrepreneurship has always been viewed uh, in the academic space and I think by entrepreneurs themselves as start your own, start your own, start your own. And, you know, sort of the only alternative flavor we have gotten is sort of corporate entrepreneurship, which is sort of how to be entrepreneurial within a larger corporate setting. So that's gotten some traction um, in education and, and books and stuff like that. But this notion of sort of acquiring a business uh, as your starting point, as opposed to trying to start it from scratch, I think really has a lot of merit. And it, and it's worth something to consider. You know, in, in many ways, it's it's sort of also reminds me of sort of like an, another form of a franchise, right? Fr- franchise is a way of starting a business. And you sort of get set up, it, they help you get set up, they help you get going. But it's got a lot of rules and restrictions and things you can't do. And that may work wonderful for folks. And we've talked to people who are in who have franchises and help people set those up. And and those have been great interviews with a lot of good information. Uh, and this is sort of halfway between sort of starting your own and a franchise. You you sort of get an existing business. You get existing cash flow. The office chairs are there. The phone system is there. The computers are there. The building is there. You know all those things that you have to acquire when you start a business. Uh, that fundamentally add no value to the business uh, because you're not really selling selling anything, um, but take up a lot of time. I remember starting one of our businesses. I started. I mean, it was like th- three or four months we spent looking for office space before we found space that was you know the right size and the right cost, and and then we had to buy office furniture for it. We had to get a telephone system. We had to get you know a computer network s- set up. We had to put a security system in we spent a lot of money. And when we finished all that stuff, our business was still worth zero. We hadn't, we hadn't really moved the ball down the field other than sort of getting some infrastructure stuff set up. And that's one of the nice, one of the many nice things about doing something like this, the infrastructure set up, you have customers, you have product or services to sell. I, I think there's a lot of merit here.
1: Yeah, especially how important customer acquisition costs can be, right? And we've talked to many different people that said, oh, the key is getting a certain number of customers or the key is um, trying to to get traction early enough, right, so that you can make those sales. But when you buy an existing business, you're buying customers, too. Now, maybe they don't all stay with you, but you got a starting point. And, you know, you, you and I were talking earlier and and Maddie Brown was a great example of this, the accountant. Right. Who bought an existing practice. And if you think about it, this is the typical way in services business, whether it's an accountant or a dentist or whatever. Right. That they do. They buy a practice. Right. And because of all this. Right. The infrastructure set up. And, you know, uh, I'm a knucklehead. Right. I'm kicking myself because we should have thought of this earlier. And I I give I give Carl all the credit in the world for thinking about this. Right. Is let's let's take this model. Right. Of acquisitions and move it into mainstream entrepreneurship, trading and education, because it it makes sense. Not in every situation. Right. If you're in a totally new space. Right. With a totally new product or a new market, it's hard to find an existing business that does something similar to buy. Right. And I get that. Um, Or sometimes you can't find the right target, right? Uh, Carl talked a lot about a motivated seller, right? And somebody that's ready to retire or something like that. And you don't want to overpay because that's easy to do too. Um, And we see this on the corporate side a lot. It's it's easy to overpay for an asset. And then you're really in a hole because you're underwater, right? You owe more than the value of the business right off the bat. And you want to avoid that. So it's not a, a, a situation where it fits every every context but i think it's really worth thinking about and we should be bringing it to the attention of potential entrepreneurs more and and the other side right the established business owner who wants to grow and it's like oh i got to hire more people and i got to spend on advertising and i got to ex- expand my capacity things like this right that okay i can use this to grow my business faster it's like a growth accelerator especially, you know, and I get nervous about leverage, Baylor. right, is, you know, leverage works when the economy is growing. But when the economy shrinks, you can get caught kind of, as we say, with your pants down, right, or underwater. Um, and we, you know, y- you want to try to avoid that situation. And I'm sure there's tricks and tools for valuation that help you avoid those things. Um, but in general, with with a, a lower, moderate amount of leverage, it's OK, right, to do something like this. And it's fascinating to me. Um, And then the other side of this, so there's three sides to this coin, right? The business owner who wants to sell their business, right? Selling to an entrepreneur instead of selling to a big company. You and I have talked a lot about exit strategies on this podcast, and this seems like an alternative way to consider exit strategies, not necessarily selling to the highest bidder, but kind of be creative and sell to an entrepreneur or a potential entrepreneur who's going to kind of preserve preserve your legacy, right? Carry on what you built. Is this a viable approach from your standpoint, Bela?
0: Yeah, I think it is. You, you know, Mike, I'm glad you brought up Maddie Brown. She was uh, one of our guests. Uh, she was on episode 106. And, you know, she had worked in uh, in government, public sector for many years, and then uh, purchased uh, an accounting firm in, instead of blazing out on her own. Uh, she purchased an existing one. And so uh, for those who are interested in, in that, that was episode 106. Uh, and I think this notion of... Uh, Legacy is important, you know, and some of the examples that Carl talked about, he he talked about trying to understand what's important to the seller. And oftentimes, as Carl said, it's not about the price. It's about other things that they want to preserve. They want to preserve whether their employees, their legacy, the name, or as he said, the logo. You know, you never know what it is. But I think if you're gonna acquire one of these businesses, you gotta sort of figure that out that what does the seller really want and uh from that you can you can build on it the other interesting thing is he said i I, if i remember this correctly mike correct me if i'm wrong but this notion of there's actually a lot more businesses for sale than there are buyers so that from one perspective it's a buyer's market so to speak uh, and and uh, a lot of people want to sell their business. Now maybe they have unrealistic expectations, and that's why they're having trouble selling them, uh, which I've I, in my past, uh, I've tried to acquire a couple businesses. There was two in particular I took a pretty good run at and and both of them, the expectations, uh, did not match what I thought the value of the business was. And it, and it wasn't that it didn't match by 10%. It didn't match by a factor of two or three. Um, so uh, that may be the case. But I, I do think uh, this, this whole concept has merit. It's something to explore. And I think it's something that's missing from entrepreneurial education. It's missing from the um, entrepreneurial ecosystem that we talk about in this country we always talk about startups, startups, startups. And I think it's something that, that as entrepreneurial educators, we might want to address. Uh, and if there's any other entrepreneurial educators who, who listen to this podcast, um, I think it's something to think about. And, uh, I think, I think there's a nugget here.
1: Agreed. So yeah, check out Carl's writings and Carl's website. You'll put the link to those in the, uh, in the show notes. But uh, yeah, great interview, Bela. What do you think? Should we wrap it up? Yeah, I think so. Great listeners. Thanks for joining us today. We hope you found this episode interesting and thought provoking as obviously Bela and I did. Uh, If you have questions about what we discussed, uh, please do get in touch with us. Our email is mike at gmail.com.
0: And please do subscribe to the podcast. If you haven't already, Uh, the more people that listen, the more uh, the easier it is for other people to discover us and find us. So signing off from upstate New York. See you soon, Mike.
1: Great bailout from over here in Münster, Germany. Auf Wiedersehen.